Hi listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holiday. Chris, today we are covering anything... No, nope, ev- no. Nope. Chris, today we are covering everywhere... What nope. the hell is this film called? Everything. Any, any... What is it called? <laughs> everything. 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 Everywhere. Everywhere. All at all once. once. Yeah. You're going to start again. Okay. That never happened. We've never done this before. Nope, that was <laughs> as bad as it's gone. You've lost I'm, it. I'm flapping in front of David. Right. Uh, Let's go. Hi again, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holiday. And today, Chris, we are covering everything, everywhere, all at once, yeah. which is, I think... Yeah, is this the first time we've recorded this intro, Alex? <laughs> or is this the... So yes, everything, everywhere, yeah. all at once. A, a critique I suspect many listeners would throw at us to try to do every episode, sure. but today we're at least explicitly trying to do it. Yes. Um, very a t- recent... A, t- a tongue twister to say, uh, a maelstrom to watch, I think. There's sure. lots... Um, yeah, there's lots. Uh, I hadn't seen it. I was saying to, to our special guest before um, before we started that I hadn't seen it at the cinema. It sort of bypassed me a little bit. So I watched it relatively recently for the first time. Um, not entirely sure what I make of it. And that seems to be a sort of perhaps a shared consensus that, um, yeah, it's kind of quite visually chaotic. Um, my first note involves the words a cyclone of scenes. Lovely. But I think there's, I mean, I'm really interested in, in I went through a, a Jackie Chan phase as a teen um, of kung fu films. And so I'm a big fan of Michelle Yeoh. And of course, we have a shared affection for Tomorrow Never Dies, in which she plays um, uh, Waylin. So I've got an early Bond reference in. But in terms of like, um, there's a line in it: "Do not overload the machines," which I think is a, a sign that sits next to one of the laundrette, one of the washing machines, but symbolises the whole kind of film. Yeah. Overload, kind of chaos, um, this kind of baroque treatment of style and mise en scène and, and stuff like this. Um, obviously, lots of visual effects, but also in, an interesting element to the visual effects in terms of who who made. Because it turns out there are only nine people that did this visual effects. Sure. Who, Artists who weren't trained. So I think there's there's loads to say, and I'm actually I'm really excited about how this conversation will go because I, yeah, I don't quite know what I make of the film. What about you? Yeah, from my perspective, I mean, the fantasy of metaverses and multiverses yeah. seems to be so prevalent at the moment that it's hard to ignore tackling. How we'll do justice for it with this one, yep. I don't know. But it was a, it was a, an interesting take on that, and obviously was trying to say things with that that is slightly different to some of these. Um, yeah, uh, franchise and, and and but it also tits on stuff that when we actually talked about things like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and yeah. stuff like the the role of consequence in a yes. world where all consequences or worlds where all consequences are played out and that links to how does fantasy have consequence when it's uh, escapist and uh, and magical and all these kind of fun yeah, things. Yeah. So plenty to talk about. Yeah. We're also joined today by Dr. David Sorfer, who is a senior lecturer in film studies at the University of Edinburgh and editor in chief of the journal Film Philosophy, which might listeners might give a little clue into his research interests which are um, uh, expansive so David's written on uh, film philosophy and theory um, European classical Hollywood and Czech cinema art house cinema post-structuralism phenomenology um, and is currently involved in a project on existentialism in cinema which I believe is going to 
might play into this conversation in some, <laughs> yeah, in some way I think or it form. Probably will. So, David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Oh, that's that's very kind. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, let's let's try and cover this movie that I can't say. Uh, <laughs> it would seem so. That's going to be a problem, isn't it? Uh, yes. But there's lots to potentially go where we could go first with this. Maybe we'll let our guests decide. So, so where we? How are you coming at this film? You're involved in this project on existentialism yep. and cinema, I'm assuming. So sort of what are your first impressions of it and what do you feel like unpacking with us today with the movie? Well, there's a a number of things that I think the film engages with in in lots of interesting ways. And I think part of this bigger project that I'm working on on film and existentialism is taking seriously those kinds of questions that we often have about freedom, about what it means to be human, about that. And there's something about this film, Everything Everywhere, All at Once, which I think I've got right. Yep. Yes, you have. That. That's a third of our guests have got it correctly. Well, no, two-thirds have got it correct. It's great. We're 100 or so episodes in, and we're now defining expertise by being able to say the title of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Everything Everywhere, All at Once, yes. Oh, great, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I, I think, you know, so this film... You know, as you said, that kind of multiple worlds, multiverse ideas have been around for a long time. And you, you said the word chaos. And yeah. I'm quite interested in that. If you remember, maybe you're too young now, but um, in the early 90s, chaos theory yes. was the big thing. Um, and so I, I'm quite interested in exploring that a little bit here, sure. especially through the work of a philosopher called David Lewis, who's written on possible worlds theory. Mm. Um, He wrote a book in the early 70s, I think, called Counterfactuals. Um, And I'd be interested in just kind of unpacking some of that possible worlds, chaos theory stuff, and to see how this film presents that to us, whether there's something that the film offers that is more than what the philosophy offers. Because I think this is where we come in film philosophy with the hyphen, um, is that it's not just us taking a philosopher, David Hume, Nietzsche, Gilles Deleuze, whoever, and applying their thought to a film and saying, oh, look, here is Deleuze's crystal image of time, Mm -hmm. which we could say about everything, everywhere, all at once, but rather then asking the question, well, what does this film add to our understanding of that concept? How does it push the philosophy? Mm. How does it, in the words of, of, of our friend Robert Sinnebrink, how does it do philosophy? Mm. Now, whether philosophy does philosophy is another question, <laughs> which I don't think we'll be able to answer here. But, you know, that's the thing cool. that I'd like to talk about. But, you know, there's lots more as well. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Um, where yeah. should we start? Well, I guess we should start with possible worlds. Yeah. Because so I think it's found, yeah, it kind of found, I suppose it's foundational to the narrative because because the narrative is yeah. about the. Uh, so um, so I, set, you set the, set the plot for us, Chris. It's normally my job. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> um, so uh, it's essentially about the, um, I guess, the, the tribulations of a Chinese American immigrant, uh, Evelyn uh, Wang, who's played by Michelle Yeoh, um, who works with her husband and her uh, daughter at a laundrette. Um, her daughter is engaged in a same sex relationship, which is actually super important for the way that some of the film unfolds. Um, and it I suppose for a film that is visually quite kind of chaotic, and I'm very interested in talking about chaos in relation to digital effects, actually, as well, um, but and the knock-on effect of minor effects in relation to bigger effects. Mm-hmm. But, but there is something 
almost quite simple about the premise of the film in that the film is battling the relationship between her and her husband and her relationship with her her child, um, her profession, the fact that her laundrette, her and her husband's laundrette is being investigated for tax. So it's really the two poles of the narrative are tax and laundry, which is part of one of the famous quotes of the film that love to just spend some time doing taxes and laundry with you. But against that narrative, that relatively simple narrative, is this, yeah, this kind of multiverse arrangement where um, character relationships, very complex character relationships, are played out across a series of very different and very disparate um I was going to say fictional worlds, but we might actually look at the distinction between fictional and possible worlds. Um, yeah. A series of possible worlds where events that happen in one world are paralleled, are distorted, um, are made ulterior to. So it's kind of about mm. the, the choices that, that um, Evelyn makes as a uh, wife and a mother, but those choices not just set within the confines of one fictional diegesis, let's say, but in a diegesis that itself branches out into all these different yeah. possibilities based on her, as you were saying earlier, David, kind of logic of fr- logics of freedom and choice. Um, so I think there's lots of there's lots of things we can say about what is essentially a very simple narrative that she is battling or she's wading through a, a kind of battleground with yeah. herself, with her family, with her with her daughter in particular, um, and trying to resolve those fractures against the backdrop of a sort of bigger fracture in space and time, if you like. Yeah, we were talking before recording David uh, Chris and I about the film and you know the 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 lazy easy review of this which I suspect lots of people did write because I was flicking Mm. through it yesterday is that you know but for all its multiverses it's actually a film about very small things and family and it kind of does court that reading in its kind of um its its desire to seesaw between the big the existential the sci-fi the 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 the, the expansive canvas and the kind of domestic <coughs> drama that it's interested in exploring. So, yeah, yeah, talk to us about that and possible worlds then. Okay, <laughs> so I'll just pick up where, where you left off yeah, that yeah. because, you know, thinking about this film again, um, a, what became clear, and it's because I just am reading too much kind of existentialist philosophy, that what this <laughs> film is really about... <laughs> the short such a thing we done. <laughs> what the film is really about is suicide. Okay. Basically, Joy Wang, Stephanie Sue's the daughter character. You know what? What is her kind of fantasy name? Jobu Tupaki. Yeah. Um, she is basically wanting to die. She is this force that wants to kill herself. And if you kind of try and if you. Ex- take away a lot of the fantasy elements mm-hmm. it's basically a, a family that is worried about their quite depressed daughter mm-hmm. who even though she's in a what seems like a loving relationship yeah. and all the rest of that just seems really sad and you know the spinning bagel with everything all on it is, yeah. is this kind of this black hole which is sort of reminded me of the idea of the black sun Mm. which is an image that comes from one of Julia Kristeva's books on depression and this idea that there's a, a black hole at the center of an existence that just sucks everything into it. And that's exactly how that bagel functions yeah. in there. Mm. And the problem, if, if there is one in the film, is that Joy's despair is dragging everything else with it. Um, so there's this kind of... Yeah, I'm, I'm 
simplifying a little bit, but I think this this kind of this is a desperate attempt to save this daughter from her own depression and from her willed death. So mm. yeah, if, yeah, you know yeah, that, yeah. and you, can, you, you because you I was I was thinking about well, what's the problem in this film? What, what's everybody worried about here? And they're actually worried about joy. Uh, and of course, that's her na- that, That's the you know super ironic yeah. name yeah, yeah, yeah. that she is the joyless. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know the the love story with Evelyn and 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 her husband Waymond Wang. Um, those are kind of on the periphery of this this problem. But it's also because I'm actually writing an, a chapter on suicide at the moment. Right. So obviously, as academics, as soon as yes. you start thinking about it, then everything, everything becomes the sure. thing that relevant. you're all, all at once. Yeah. Yeah. All at once becomes relevant yeah. to that. But anyway, so that was so. But but to come to, um, I'm not sure. I'm going to segue into this, yeah. but into this possible world theory. Now, the easiest way I think we can think about this is there's a Ray Bradbury story, which probably everybody knows, from 1952 called The Sound of Thunder, which is time travel is available. I think the book is set in in 2050, but I could be wrong about that. And um, time travel is a commercial enterprise and you can pay money, get sent back in time to dinosaur age, and if you have enough money, you can pay to shoot a dinosaur and they'll find a dinosaur that's about to die uh, and they'll, they'll 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 drop you in just before it dies you know with a with a tree falling or whatever you get to shoot it it would have died anyway right and famously in that story this rich man who goes back sort of loses his nerve and steps off the special hermetically sealed path through the through the, the prehistoric jungle and when they return to the future or to their present he realizes that everything has changed slightly Mm -hmm. that when they left the left liberal party had just won when he gets back they had just lost spelling of of words is a little bit and then he looks on his shoe and he sees a butterfly that he stood on when he when he stood off the path and killing that butterfly has had this yeah. butterfly effect. Yep. <clears throat> There's some debate whether that term comes from this story or not, but, but, but it's certainly part of that uh, tradition. So this idea that changing something in the past, however infinitesimal, will change the outcomes. So what David Lewis in this book, Counterfactuals from the 70s, says is quite straightforward he says and if you don't mind me quoting no, from no. him it is uncontroversially true that things might be otherwise than they are i believe and so do you that things could have been different in countless ways i therefore believe in the existence of entities that might be called quotes ways things could have been i prefer to call them possible worlds mm. So whether I decided decide to say the word but next or and next, that's something we've got two branches. And I could easily have chosen either one of those words and, and we could have done, you know, and there'd be a slightly different thing. So 
for Lewis, these possible worlds, it's part of a, a discussion in philosophy, if I understand this correctly, in the kind of philosophy <clears throat> he's doing is what it means for something to have actuality, mm. to exist. Yeah. And he goes, but there are things that exist that never happened or that could have existed very easily. Um, and he's not talking about, I think this is where in the film, you know, the problem with, which I'm not sure I, I, I like, is the, the hot dog fingers world. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. that this is, you know, the world as far down the branch as possible, you know, that, that if we go back to the dinosaur ages and we do something pretty big, then, 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 then there's a whole other kind of thing. I don't see how the hot dog world could have ever come into being, but the idea that those are possible worlds, that they could, if we go back far enough and if we, we just find a point at which things branch off, then we would find this. Now, the film kind of takes that theory as its centre very quickly, explains it, I think, mm -hmm. at least on the second time watching it, relatively coherently. <laughs> um, and then you just go, OK, well, if she can find... Um, a possible world which is adjacent. Now we could try and work out how this actually works in terms of mapping and so on, but um, she will be able to find a world in which she chose to become a, uh, you know, a martial arts expert, or, yep. you know, something like that, and then tap into that person who would be existing at exactly the same time as her. Because I was thinking about how time works in this film, and it does seem you can't move into the past. Mm. or the future mm. but you can only move across time yeah. and it's actually it's only joy the depressive black hole that only has w or inhabits all her entities at all times at the same time yeah i think that's how it works yeah yeah that yeah. and that's how the film the film sets her up as somebody who has that kind of access to all of these sim there's kind of a simultaneity um, yeah. i mean uh, so we've talked previously on the the podcast about kind of fictional worlds yeah. and so i'm really interested in this distinction between fictional yeah. worlds and, and, and possible worlds and and um i i think I'm right in having said that I've cited the work of a, of Ruth Ronin who works on literary theory and, and yep. possible words and she says kind of tying in and as I was watching the film I thought this fits with exactly her definition of, of that distinction between fictional fictional worlds is a bigger branch of which there is a subset of possible worlds yep. um, so um, so she argues and this is a quote possible worlds are based on a logic of ramification determining the range of possibilities that emerge from an actual state of affairs mm -hmm. so whereas parallelism is a word that she uses to describe fictional worlds so we could say um, Mission Impossible films mm -hmm. are fictional worlds because they're rooted more in a logic of the parallel because they, they are our world um, yes. with our technological, this is Perkins' article on, fi on, sure. on fictional worlds but it's like the logic of parallelism, it runs parallel <laughs> to ours our history, um, yeah. their films Hitler is our film, is our real yes. world's Hitler. But our Tom Cruise is presumably not alive. So he's the, the yeah, only yeah. the only yeah. James Bond is a fictional character, or Ethan Hunt is a fictional character within a fictional world. Mm -hmm. We're not invited to read the Mission Impossible films or the Bond films as possible worlds yes, yes, because yes. they are supposed to run parallel. So she argues that parallelism is a t her term for a kind of modal structure of a fictional world built on a clear mm -hmm. and unmistakable equivalence to um, our world that's typically validated through its connection to reality. Um, 
whereas ramification is marked by different laws that are rooted in like contradiction and divergence. This film seems absolutely rooted in that logic of ramification, a kind of a series of conditional tenses that plays out visually as, as the fictional world that we think is one fictional world that we see in films and video games and art all the time actually becomes not a fictional world at all. It is one, it is actually a world of ramification. And what I like about this film is that it starts off like a Mission Impossible film, like, oh, this is just parallel to our world. But because it suddenly now exists between a network of other ones, that means that it's not a fictional world. It's a, that's also one of the possibilities. Yeah. So become see, yeah, so yeah, now yeah. now it's not a fictional world. So there are no fictional worlds in this film, or there, or if there are, they're all fictional worlds, but they're also all possible worlds. Yeah. So that distinction yeah. between parallelism and ramification is is sort of quite useful in in making a distinction <coughs> between historical fiction and science fiction. One is more mm. conditional tense, and one is more parallel to yeah. our world. Yeah. Um, and the difference in the, the difference is often one of degree rather than kind. It's whether or not a film wants to tell us more. So I think this is why I'm interested, uh, the film in relation to these kinds of categories, perhaps. So if I may, to bring that to sort of how this film is using this kind of strategy mm. yes. we're articulating and unpacking here, I found myself very much identifying with joy in this movie, which is troubling because... Uh, Based on to, the intro that yeah, we've just yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but in the sense that, and I think I'd probably articulate, when we've talked about, particularly with the MCU, when we're watching a few of them at the moment, to talk about you know, the slightly more populist version of this kind of world building... The thing that always strikes me is as soon as you engage in a fiction like this where there are these possible worlds, two things oh, yeah. happen simultaneously. I think this film is very interested in exploring, but I'm not convinced. Um, this has been a critique I've levied at, at the others, which is one, um, <clears throat> as soon as you start talking about um, different choices having consequences and enacting them all out, oddly you make your fiction consequenceless because if everything can happen all at once mm. the significance of what is happening i find in some of these like, other movies you mean like dramatic stakes yeah yeah, yeah. so like you know in, in an mc world where multiple versions of all the characters can exist one character mm. dying loses all significance in terms of its impact upon the fictional world so which i think this film is interested in exploring because i think that's joy's point isn't it once you've seen all the possibilities of the world none of them actually make any sense uh, yeah. and that's kind of part of her kind of uh, nihilism or, or fatalism or indeed suicidal uh, yeah. tendencies is that once you've seen how everything plays out all the time you understand that nothing nothing matters um, and then the second one I had uh, was also what can happen in these movies is that by dramatising supposedly all the possibilities what you end up doing is actually exposing the limitations in your in one's own imagination because mm. it's actually like some of these movies like isn't it interesting that you've never thought of a world where none of these characters exist for example you know yeah. they're, they're, all the all the possibilities are actually possibilities of how they can wear different clothes and uh, be you know like uh, be, be in slightly different and have uh, slightly uh, different Hairstyles, yeah, 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 exactly. Rather yeah. than like actually, what it's, be different actors. Uh, and again, I think yeah. this film is interested in exploring kind of that as well. What's the limitations of how we can represent these worlds through animation, through things like the you know the yeah. the, the, the non-human world with the stones and the yeah, kind of the uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, like I, don't know, I think the film is interested in exploring both of those things, and I think it taps into some of the ideas or some of the kind of existentialist yeah. themes that we might explore. Yeah, about. absolutely, and I think. Um, I mean, the rock thing, perhaps second time I watched it, I was more um, sympathetic to the rocks. I think when I first saw it, I thought, oh, my God, this is just stupid. Yeah. But then I realized that, in fact, the joy rock kills herself. 
she throws herself yeah. off the thing. So I was like, okay, this this fits into my suicide yeah, yeah. theory. <laughs> sure, um, but I'm not sure how. But this, uh, and also coming back to to what you were saying, Chris, about yeah. this difference between the counterfactual worlds and possible worlds and fictional worlds. I suppose I, I take it slightly differently that fictional worlds can be impossible worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. You know, the, the famous example for, of an impossible object in philosophy is the round square. Now, by definition, in the way that we use language and understand the world, we cannot have a round square. It's a bit like having a married bachelor or whatever it is. But I could have a story just full of round squares. I probably couldn't have a film of mm-hmm. round squares, but I could have a written... And the, the, that strikes me as an interesting distinction between written fiction and visual fiction mm-hmm. so so to bring it back to everything everywhere mm-hmm. all at once and and because the other question i was thinking why does it do all this why does it have yeah. this whole possible worlds yeah. thing and you know all the flashbang chaos of it all you know what's the point here and i suppose my my sense was the important thing is possibility mm-hmm. and that it's it's almost it's the literal kind of thing that things could be different. Now, if now this is going to be slightly weak psychology, but is that I imagine one of the things that might cause, let's call it true nihilism. Nothing is worth doing anymore, and I want to die, or I must die, or mm-hmm. there is no... I presume one way of saying a similar kind of thing is saying, I do not see any more possibility. I yes. do not see anything changing. That the black hole image, just that's it. There is no nothing else possible. And therefore, I should die or I must die. Um, but if we're in this kind of multiverse world, then the multiverse is in fact a metaphor for choice. Mm-hmm. That... You could choose to say and or but. You could choose to live or die. And even having that minimal choice, because presumably, and in the depressed world, there is no choice. You are being drawn to death. And I think Lars von Trier's Melancholia Mm -hmm. is a beautiful example of that. You know, where halfway through when they realize everybody's going to die, there's going to be the big planet crash. Um, Kirsten Dunst's character, uh, Justine, sort of gets slightly happy. I mean, she's not delirious, but she's she's been depressed and suicidal for the first half of the film. But as soon as she realizes everybody else is going to die, and she was right, she becomes the kind of moral center of that film. Mm. Don't know how that fits in what, what <laughs> I'm talking about. But the point is yeah. that that for, for Joy, what that that whole multiple worlds armature is there is a possible other outcome. And that mm. seems to me the kind of psychological force of that film, that just realizing that something could be different is the minimal mm. thing to stop you from throwing your rock self off the cliff. And then the highest is that, that, that something else could be possible and that something is a way out. Yeah. And that's the thing, I suppose, with this film, the, the, the repeating joys that recur across all these different worlds seem to be in this similar state yeah, the there isn't variance in the way that that evelyn has variance singer yeah uh, performer 
all these different possible versions of herself and that coexist in this mm. same time. Um, they are all deliberately variants. And of course, you, this is also where science fiction loves to have vari- variation. That's part- yeah. Whereas the interesting thing about this is that the multiverse for, for Joy doesn't really offer those kinds of alternatives. No. <laughs> it's not a... Because she's the same she's in the, every She's universe. the same, yeah. yeah. And that's... But, right. Yeah, yeah, because that also... I mean, I was just, just, just yeah. looking at your book, Alex, and um, thinking about Tsvetan Todorov mm-hmm. and his definition, which I've always liked, of the fantastic as the point of ambiguity where we don't know whether we're in a marvellous, magical world or whether we're in an uncanny, not Freudian, uncanny world where where it's a trick, where we think somebody's, you know, so on. So so that ambiguity also, I'm trying to work out exactly what what is useful about that idea. It comes back to this idea of of choice. And, of course, with my interest in existentialism, you know, radical free choice is, is crucial for Jean-Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. that you are always, you know, the famous phrase that he uses, you're condemned to be free, i.e. you're condemned to make a choice. Now, I'm not, that probably I need to think through more how that kind of would work with my slightly utopian, happy reading of everything everywhere all at once, is that once Joy realises that things don't have to be the same, that change is possible, which perhaps is a little bit American dreamy, you <laughs> know, if you think, you know, you yes. can, but that you're no longer trapped in this thing. But just that ambiguity, and I think Todorov's yeah. idea of the fantastic, where we're not sure what's going on, has this, I think what something like somebody like Jacques Derrida would call play, like yes. in the pinball machine. There's just, you're not breaking the rules, but you can shift it just enough to have something else happen. Mm-hmm. And... That's very different, I think, to somebody like Alain Badiou and the idea of the event as this cataclysmic sea change, paradigm change. I mean, I, I think Badiou yeah. is very kind of kind of Kuhnian, Thomas Kuhnian in this. Well, I, I, I guess to try and bring some of that together, mm. I, I think um, I've always I remember I remember when I first read Sartre, I I I found it tremendously uplifting as a sort of you know, 21-year-old mm. um, pretentious so-and-so, and now I'm a whatever best, I am, pretentious so-and-so. So-and-so. But, like, you know, um, uh, because I remember, you know, I think what, I, I think the tonic it provides joy, if, if mm. such a thing, would be that her depression also becomes a choice, you know, and that realisation becomes the tool to the freedom to choose something yeah. else, right? Is that actually part of the depressive thinking is that she feels locked. Yeah. But actually, what Sartre would say... I, is that that in itself becomes part of the thing is that you're already choosing you just don't, might not necessarily know you are and the freedom comes from uh, from or part of the freedom yeah. comes from accepting no matter what you do you are choosing so uh, yeah so, no, and I so can, own the yeah. choice a yeah. little bit and more I, but I in a less self-helpy kind of uh, yeah. way of, of but I can see that. that being being a problem because you know one of the things that perhaps defines <clears throat> at least I'm not talking about real psychological depression but let's call it fictional Mm -hmm. depression for want of a better term is that for the depressive and that's where i like christava's black sun there is no choice Mm. this is the only thing that can possibly happen and so for Sartre, there's a problem because 
what if there is a state, let's call it depression, where you 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 do not you cannot choose, and that's a kind of a psychological sure. problem, because if you you can say, oh, you're free, it's like well. Uh, is somebody who's depressed free in the same way? And I think perhaps this is what this film is kind of gnawing away at, yeah. sort of in the background, but it seems to me what is structuring the whole thing there. Yeah, and to, and to, to bounce the ball back as well with the Todorov thing is that I've always, I actually recently... Oh, off you go. Go on, Todorov, <laughs> off you go. You guys sit back, I've got this. No, no, no. <laughs> um, um, uh, is that also, and I've actually this is a reading of Todorov I've, re, I've, I've come to again recently because I was recently doing another lecture on it in that... The way Todorov phrases the fantastic is it's a choice. It's a, it's it's between two choices. Yeah. But actually, it strikes me that there is there's also a third choice which he never articulates, which is not to choose, which is not to choose between those two um, fixed determinacies and to choose the ambiguity as a as kind an of act. prolong the hesitation yeah. Yeah, and, and to act because yeah, he always prolong. sees the hesitation as brief. Yes, yes. And, and as a failure to choose yeah. or an inability to choose. But actually, you could choose not to. You could choose not to choose. Uh, so I, I would throw that, uh, you know, that you can throw that in the mix. In that, actually, um, it's that it's it part of mm. part of what the film's trying to work through is she's if it and I'm, to follow your reading, mm. it's almost to be glib about it. She's she's trying to find she's trying to imagine a possible world where she might be happy. Exactly, right? exactly. A, a vision of herself that might be happy. Yeah, and part of that happiness comes from, um, from 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 not from not seeing this kind of direct connection between decisions and meaning and agency and all this kind of stuff and actually kind of to, to live in to live in the fantastic a little bit more to live in yeah, the yeah, yeah. so she's trying so she's trying to prolong the, the hesitation by or, or find some I guess you know once you're once you're stuck in the kind of black sun of depression even to even even to find space between that is is part yeah. of the liberation is it, is it interesting though that joy is well I, you may disagree is that joy is not the center of the film yeah that mm. Michelle, who, who is who is not depressed in the same no, no, way, no. or perhaps even not depressed at all, but is kind of there, there's. I mean, there's lots of references, but kind of I, I wrote down kind of femininity reaching. There's a whole question about femininity reaching its full potential. Um, of course, mm. the divorce <laughs> narrative is a really interesting mm. kind of backdrop to, to some of these things. Um, I also wrote down women at their breaking point and was thinking again. Well, I was thinking about how this might fit into. A contemporary moment, of course, when when, and I don't think the film is doing this, but of course, categories of the woman are under attack quite mm. consistently. Um, and so I just thought it was interesting that we 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 sort of are positioning Joy as this. We've talked a lot about Joy, and actually, she's not the main character and doesn't appear in the film for quite some long. And yet, she's the character who has a resolution that. So I don't know. I just wonder what people thought about that as a. As yeah. it, it, it's very much Michelle Yeoh's movie. Um, well at least that's why but I think perhaps that's where we could say in fact the film has a slightly unsatisfying ending for her which is the oh well she really does love her husband and she's actually trapped and in and in some ways you kind of what is lost is is Waymond I'm not (laughs) mispronouncing it it's spelled with a W Waymond's choice to, to divorce her that's kind of taken away from him as yeah. well. So I, I wasn't, I didn't like that. And, no. you know, it seemed too glib. And, you know, oh, well, actually, because in fact, now I'm trying to remember what happens to Alpha Waymond, the no. kind of from the other yeah, world. Yeah, Because yeah. he's, isn't he, doesn't he get killed in the, in the sort of 
mall shootout thing? Does he yeah. not get killed in in that? And he right. says, "Oh no, I." I uh, he says some final words to him and then kind of collapses. Right. Oh no, and then he comes back again, doesn't he? I, I got really confused because there's another version who's like in a car or like a the back seat or like a control room or something with a headset on. Yeah, that's Alpha. That's Alpha Wayman. But but okay, so then he then chat the one who's in the in with her channels that guy and yes. goes yeah, yips yeah, in yeah, and yeah. out. Yeah, I can't remember what happens to him then. No. I remember that he gets killed by Joy in the Alpha world. Right, right, okay. When she attacks the kind of that... Yes, they um, have a... Cra- yeah, yeah, they, uh, yeah. Thing, so. The Matrix ship. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the bit yeah, in Inception yeah, yeah, where yeah. the white man goes yeah, off that, the edge that, of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There were lots and lots of bits. I, 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 and I think that's where the chaos... You know, and I, chaos is kind of productive. And, and certainly within visual effects... The, the way that these films are kind of chaotically produced is that you have different spaces and times. You have stuff in camera, post-production. You have um, kind of sequences that are caught or trapped in these different, you know, between analog and digital spaces. And mm. so f- films are very chaotic because stuff is hidden from, cuts are hidden. or So I, I quite like chaos as this sort of generative way of talking about. I was going to ask you about chaos because um, I'm... I, hmm, what am I trying to say? I, there's something to the way this film is edited... That is not yeah. You said before we started chaotic. I don't think. I mean, it's it's hectic and it's hyperbolic and it's lively. But I, I wonder. I wonder if when you when we're saying chaos, do we mean pro filmically chaotic? Do we mean like because the shots are quick? Like, but 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 there's something quite reassuring, almost kind of like you know a meta cinematic reading of like cinema's ability to stitch everything together and create meaning. You can almost use this to teach editing analysis in like mm. an, an intro to film studies course right where you know when you're just trying to get students to find links between shots and all that sort of stuff the film is very good at kind of stitching all these worlds together even though we keep jumping in between mm-hmm. all of them i guess my thing is when we talk about wilbur we're often talking about pro I've, pro filmic mise-en-scene things like that but the edit becomes so important to a movie like this to kind of is i don't find the the editing chaotic i actually mm. think it's pretty you know, it's continuity. Editing, I mean, right? you know, you the, know the, um, the the the, the were one to do an average shot length. Fine, yes, they'd be very very short. Yes, but, but there is a kind of a false equivalence in close analysis of the film where students talk about you know, and the rapid editing makes it all. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. it doesn't though actually. Because, but, but it's like a but, mosaic isn't chaotic, is it? You no. can see the picture. It's just yeah. lots of little bits it's, stuck together. Yeah. You know? um, so maybe it's to do going back to this issue of time because all the things are happening simultaneously. There's a lot of match on action. So close-ups of Michelle yeah. Yeoh's face are repeated. So there is a kind of linearity. It's not non-linear. Um, the only weird bit of the film for me was the opening shot of the film where you have them kind of laughing as a family in a in a window or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the it, mirror in the mirror. Yeah. And then, then in fact, the camera disappears into the mirror. Yeah. That's the only bit that's a kind of weird, a strange kind of fr- and never sort of comes out. Yeah. yeah. Because then, yeah, because then there's a there's a parallel mirror that we see Wayman's face yeah. in first. Yeah. As well. So so we're in she's the doing the taxes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I was thinking. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would work, but this kind of we're already framed in the mirrored world. As that was, well. but that's the only part of the film where the the timing was confused mm. because I didn't know whether that was before. Well, if it's if it's if it's after, 
the events that are happening, then the end of the film isn't the end of the film, in the same way we talk about consequentiality. The ending of the yeah. film is satisfactory, that's because it... the film has ended, but the world does not. Fine. But if the, the that's the only bit where the time is confused, because you don't know what you're seeing in the mirror, whether that's because then it abruptly cuts, and they're not a happy family. They are, she's doing the taxes, and yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. very kind of grey and claustrophobic and stuff. But they are at the end. But so, the, is so, it like, is it the, is it so if it's the end at the beginning, then that that means that we've already seen the happy ending before we. Anyway, yeah. that's the only bit that's confused. I agree with you. Everything seems to be happening quite in an ord, relatively orderly fashion. There's no the the editing is actually an illusion because actually it seems quite comparative. Like I, I don't I didn't feel disjointed with the film. I sort of understood mm. in the same way. I don't find Inception particularly confusing. You just no. one's in no. the snow, one's in the back well, of the car. I, I use Inception to teach continuity editing because yeah. I think it's an incredibly good example of just how to make things very simple with visual cuts and things yeah. like that. It's not it's not yeah. very difficult to follow at all. But, but, no, I, but I, and I suppose to, to say the to say the obvious that the the fact that Joy is a young girl with a partner who she's trying to you know the film is also Ooh. interesting in the generation so you have the older um mm. james hong character really sure. old father then you have the parents and then you have her and her new partner and this is also as much about the union of those two generations mm. and, and one of the payoffs of the film is is the grandfather holding the girlfriend's hand and just yeah. repeating the word girlfriend like that's that's one of the emotional powers of the film so it's also about that but it's it's it, as i said i, I was sort of ex I, I was expecting I, I, I was kind of torn between Michelle Yeoh's character, Evelyn, as being the centre, and then actually it's more about than I'd understood from the, the trailer mm. or the the brouhaha around the film that it's kind of m more about this yeah. teenage girl who's mm. moving through a world not kind of built for her, and which is you know one of the ways that often you know, queer identities have been understood that you're trying to move through these spaces, and that's also where visual effects are kind of queering, and that maybe this is where the chaos comes in because because digital effects queer space and time but they do so on screen but they do at the level of production where you have these different shots composited together and that are made across in different parts of the mm -hmm. world and brought so there's all these interesting things that i'd not really thought the film was <laughs> was doing but i knew this would happen that we'd have yeah. a conversation about but it I think, but in terms of the special effects what i suppose this is where the hot dog hands world mm, rankles yeah. because the effect is clearly terrible I mean, you know, those are yeah, rubber yeah, hands, yeah. and they're very clearly not not even high end rubber yeah. hands. And there's there's a certain joy in the crappiness of that effect, which is also you see in Swiss Army Man. Right, yeah. There's quite a lot. There's a lot of special effects there, but a lot of it is quite crappy. But then, in fact, because one part of the the film, which is almost a reference back to Terence Malick's Badlands, okay. you know, where where uh, Sissy Spacek and uh, Martin Sheen, is it Martin Sheen? Yes. Um, build a little fantasy house in the forest uh -huh. when they've run away, you know, as, as in these kind of these Bonnie and Clyde characters. So that's what the dead body and Paul Dano do. They build a fantasy bus um, and they act out scenarios from, 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 from Hank's life in that as well. So, But it's all done out of sticks and stones. So, mm -hmm. so there's a certain joy in their kind of practical effect and of the possibility of imagining other worlds with even rudimentary kind of... It doesn't all have to be very realistic, very kind of 8K and all that kind of stuff, just having yeah. some... Well, again, that's why I kind of think, well, if the hot dog's hands worked for me, that would help, but they don't, you know, I find... Is it, is it right that the hot dog hands version 
is that the version where Deirdre and Evelyn are a couple? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I don't know. That seems an interesting way of doing that relationship. Yeah. In 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 in, in a sort of a possible world of. Um, a, a kind of a queer relationship, a, a lesbian relationship between these mm. two characters, that they saw, there's this kind of, un, not an undercutting of it, but it's made absurd or it's made surreal. And I, it it's kind of reminds me of our our um, episode on Spider-Verse, where it's like mm. all these different spider, anyone can be spider, including a, a, a pig. And it's all that sort of like ridicules the, everybody can be Spider-Man, a black guy, a pig. Like it's just sort of makes it absurd. And I just wonder whether there's a sort of, there's lots of absurdity in the film. There's a great, ra- obviously, great Ratatouille references, yeah. of course. But there's there's something interesting Raccoon-tui. about Ratatouille. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's but Raccoon-uni. that I, I don't quite understand. I don't. I, I was very touched by their relationship, the same sex relationship in this m- multiverse mm. or this possible world, um, that seemed to be made absurd by these. Silly hands, silly fingers, and I don't yeah. know what was. I, I thought, oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. The film's doing that in relation to this. This. Well, if the film was saying. Oh, it's, this is so crazy for these two women to be in an, uh, an affair, as crazy as they're yeah. hot dog hands. Yeah. It's possible. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting. That's the world that stood out to me most for, for all kinds of reasons. This is definitely a massive overreading slash. Well, I don't really believe in overreading, but a bonkers reading. Um, but it's just, it's just reson- The line is resonating with me while we're having this conversation. So I'll mention it now. Is that there was a line about um, the distinction between can't, you can't and you won't. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. who says it to who in the movie, but I wrote it down in my notes. You say you can't, but you mean you won't, is yeah, that they yeah, say. Yeah. And it's that kind of, it could be done, you just won't do it. Um, and I wonder if the film's interested in that um, in in many ways. But the way I was thinking about it with this is that there's a certain, just on a kind of basic kind of mechanics filmmaking approach, that why can't we make this? We won't make this movie because we don't have the budget for it. Well, we can make this movie, even if it looks ridiculous. Mm. So we will make the movie. Kind of, um, yeah, there's, there's a certain quiet politics of lo-fi going on in some of these moments. Whether mm. it works all the time, I don't know. But it's definitely courting a kind of... And the film's reception kind of um, evidences this. This kind of, we are, we are, we are, the pl- we are making a film with a deliberately insanely ambitious title... With a deliberately with a with a budget that can't support it mm. on a scale that you don't normally see this level of filmmaking do, and we're doing it in a slightly ramshackle manner, and that's something to be um, mm. because we can, we will, we won't, yeah. we won't let you tell us we won't, you know. Yeah, um, and, and we're also going to reference all our favourite movies. Yeah, 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 and we're going to get stars from from the Goonies and rehabilitate yeah. them, and you know, just just do this, and I think. Because now that we're swapping quotes, the quote for me <laughs> from the film, which happens well, a number one of out times, and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you're going to be going next. Is we can do whatever we want; nothing matters. Yeah. Now, if that isn't pure existentialism, sure, sure, sure. everything is possible, and it's because there is nothingness at the center of being, but not the black sun. But something else, something else, uh, a nothingness in that way that so many people have tried to. Um, get to grips with, you know, with with John Paul Sartre's being yes. and nothingness. You know, what does it mean to have nothing at the centre? And the way I always try and explain that is to say, well, nothingness is possibility, because if there isn't nothingness, you're you're trapped. I mean, so it's this, the gap that I uh, talk. About. I think that's what I was struggling to get earlier with 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 what joy needs it. What what the depressive position needs is to see the black sun as nothingness rather than see it as as. as 
uh, emptiness or whatever the, yeah. whatever the uh, equivalent would be. And I think it's, um, it's been a while since I've read it, but in his, um, his Psychology of the Imagination, mm. Sartre talks about um, posit the, the, the act of imagination positing nothingness, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and, and exactly you're saying as a tool through which freedom and, and um, freedom can be, and choice can be expressed. Uh, I think you're absolutely right on that. Go on then, Chris, got a quote? My quote <laughs> is uh, towards the end when I think it's... Um, I think it's Wayman says, let's not live in a fantasy, which suggests that the world that they're in, I suppose that, I suppose that's the other thing with possible worlds, that one always thinks that there's a centre and then possible worlds are defined in relation yeah. to, whereas this film tries to destabilise the, mm -hmm. the project of a centre by saying, well, they're all everything all, all at once. They're essentially everything. So I, I wonder whether... He says, let's not live in a fantasy, as if to try and bring things back to the real world. But the film has tried to say that this is not even the real world because it coexists among yep. many different possibilities. So that struck me. Um, and yet, as I said, the, the quote at the beginning, do not overload the machines, I thought was a nice little throwaway gag in the corner of this big sign on the laundrette, which is sort of exactly... Mm. It's an overload here. Anyway. Can we talk about martial arts and kung fu and bodies and... I don't know, I have nothing... I have questions, but I have no answers to this, which is that well, the way we're describing this movie, it sound, the, 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 comp, the characters could be sat on a sofa having yeah. a lovely chat. What they spend most of the movie doing is engaging in kind of kung fu, high-kicking action. And I'm, I, I'm interested in what the... I, I didn't quite get... Well, I, I was trying to work through what the film is doing with that. I mean, part of it is the kind of genre fun of, hey, let's do this as an action flick. Mm. It's obviously interested in Michelle Yeoh's yes. stardom. Yeah, absolutely. One of the worlds is essentially, what if you were Michelle Yeoh rather than this um, laundry uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, owner? Um, and then I just wonder, there's also something weird about sort of Asian bodies and Kung Fu. And there's a weirdness to like the logic of, okay, if you didn't, meet this man, obviously what you'd have done is become a kung fu star instead. So I, I just, lots of things, but there's a lot of kung fu in this movie to help express these ideas. And then if you really start picking at this, is there some sort of weird thing about, I mean, The Matrix also has lots, like there's, mm. there's I don't know, what on earth, anyone got thoughts on kung fu or or the issue of I don't know just sort of there's lots you know or Asian identity how the film engages with the sort of Asian identity of of many of its characters uh, more broadly. Yeah, I mean I think there's this you know I mean the term that, that that certainly comes to mind immediately as you say it like that is a kind of an Orientalism yeah. this fantasy yeah. of the Asian. Um, as magical, as excessive, as hypersexualized, you know, in, in Saeed's book, all those sure, sure, kinds sure. of things. Yeah. What's interesting about the, the Kung Fu f film is this fantasy of self-reliance. Um, I'm not sure if that's mm. right. Term. You know, that idea that, again, there's this kind of, if you train hard enough, if you put in the work, you will be able to overcome. There's this kind of very kind of... Um, rely on yourself yeah. in order to overcome your mm -hmm. problems. Now, of course, you know, we'd, we'd have to look at a whole bunch of different films. And the one I actually, if I ever get back on this, if I manage to inveigle my way back and be to talk about Sword of Doom. But okay. anyway, that's a, that's a different sort Mental of Mental note. Um, but, um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure there's a, yeah, let's call it a fantasy film. Um, but the, the other point I was going to make on that, and one of the interesting things about cinema in Africa, stay with me, I'm coming. is 
that in the 1960s and 1970s, as far as I'm aware, the most popular genre cinema, the most popular African cinema was Kung Fu cinema. Okay. That was what was shown certainly in South Africa, in um, township cinemas, cinemas for black people, because of course there was full segregation, they mainly showed Kung Fu films. And mm. there's quite a lot written about people remembering what those films were, why they were so popular. It's Bollywood and Kung Fu films are the popular cinema of Africa in the 70s. So there's something about empowerment there yes. as well. Yeah. You know, in, in quite a simple sort of way, you don't need anything. No. You know, you've got the power in your pinky to, yes. to, overcome, to, to overcome ideology and politics. Yeah. And in some ways, I can see the kind of, you know, the way that existentialism fell out of favour because it was seen as a kind of neoliberal, I th- well, at least this is part of my argument I'm making, a kind of a neoliberal philosophy, because it basically says everything's up to you, you're alone, your choices are your own, the facticity of the world, what, again, what Sartre calls later the practico-inert, which I think is a great term that nobody ever uses, but um, the reality of the world, it's up to you to choose to overcome it. And again, you can see where the problematic is. It's like, oh, you're depressed. Oh, well, just choose not to be depressed when there's a mm-hmm. built-in problem that that's exactly what depression is stopping you from doing. And I think that's what Everything Everywhere All at Once is kind of tapping into, into that kind of empowerment fantasy of those kung fu, of the kung fu genre and kind of letting it play along through Michelle Yeoh yeah. and, and through all that, but into this kind of how, you know, creating a space for choice, a space for freedom. Now, uh, my only addition to that is, I suppose, thinking about the late 1990s and the arrival of Jackie Chan as a star. So he, he, I I think the early 90s, he makes the third police story with Michelle Yeoh. Then he sort of makes a series. uh, Jackie Chan's first strike around 95, 96. Jackie Chan's Who Am I? Michelle Yeoh is in is in Tomorrow Never Dies in ninety seven ninety eight. Jackie Chan makes the first Rush Hour. Ninety nine is when The Matrix comes out. Two thousand is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So there's this kind of intensification, certainly. And and scholars are writing about the the, the relationship that this, these films have to visual effects. So kind of wire foo. So and people like Lisa Funnel writing, who's interested in Bond uh, movies, but also writing about warrior women uh, and this early two thousand sort of you know space of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but also things like House of Flying Daggers and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose from on a visual effects, you know, b- bodies in motion, um, bodies suspended, um, that of course is related to, and of course Hollywood would bring this into early early films actually that were interested in femininity. So I've always been interested in how early 2000s Hollywood movies, we talk about Wirefu moving from Crouching Dragon Dragon into by, by way of the Matrix into Hollywood, but it moved into Hollywood not in male-oriented genres. So action, male-dominated action cinema was born, was Batman Begins, and was as um, kind of, I guess more gritty. Whereas okay. Wirefu actually went into post-feminist cinema. So Charlie's Angels, Underworld, um, Aeon Flux, uh, all these kinds. Of, so yeah. it was very closely connected with femininity. 
Mm. Uh, strangely, rather than male bodies doing all the even yeah. even Daniel even Daniel Craig runs to a wall. Uh, that's not the same yeah, as yeah. as as, as and I'm really Pro- interested yeah. in in post feminism's double entanglement as scholars that wrote about it, and how that plays out through bodies that are being suspended both as part of their power but also being kind of constrained by being puppets anyway. So I'm interested mm. in kind of the post-feminism related to post-production and all this sort of stuff. So I guess from a visual spectacle point of view, yeah. effects are often effects are often uh, celebrated for what they can do to the body. And Kung Fu is a great way of, of showing bodies doing things slightly differently as well, I would yeah. say. Um, I'm, I'm glad I asked that incredibly half-baked question because those are both absolutely <laughs> fascinating answers that do crystallise thoughts. But yeah, I've got nothing to add to it. Here's We've done it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you. David, um, before you leave us uh, and return to the, the world of the possible or the, or, or the now, um, you're uh, speaking about the future. You've got this, So this book's on existential cinema. It'll be yep. out in a few years? Or a, a year probably, or two? probably a year or two. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm just busy kind of working. Te- tease us with the wider project if you, if you well, can. Well, the wider project is really kind of taking some of the big ideas of existentialism uh, which and in fact I called up my talk from tomorrow to get things like freedom and responsibility death existential isolation the absurd uh, in, in a number of ways the idea of authenticity what does it um, mean to act in bad faith or good faith as well problems of anxiety and angst identity and individuality, nothingness in in, in a broader broader way. Uh, And then I think at the center of this project is actually almost returning to to Sartre's lecture from 1945, existentialism is a humanism. And just almost going sort of, perhaps part of that is sort of going, actually humanism is not over. There is something of value to be to think about ourselves as humans and what that might mean. And I think that those are not easy questions to answer, but I think that's what I'm trying to do. And of course, you know, this list of of, of concepts that, that, that I've just gone through, freedom and all the rest of that, that's what films are about. And so, you know, I'm gonna be looking at Westerns and freedom, film noir and freedom, the problem of suicide in film, and so it's so it's kind of a, the, these kind of big ideas, and then then just um, going through a whole bunch of quite interesting film examples as well. And it's based on a course I've been teaching for the past three or four years at the University of Edinburgh on film and existentialism. And I, I suppose I, I I think that existentialism is coming back into fashion, and I think certainly a lot of my students, the first time they've actually ever read any existentialism beyond one sentence from de Beauvoir sure, sure, sure. and nothing from Jean-Paul Sartre. Unless they're French students, in which case they've, they've read half or at least half of one chapter of being in nothingness. Okay. So it's just about kind of saying, on the one hand, these are really interesting ideas that talk to issues that, that, that are relevant to a lot of films, but also, and this is the secret behind, or the se- behind, behind the project is, that existentialism in, um, underlies a lot of film theory. That a lot of the film theory we know and like mm. from the ideological critics of the 60s and 70s to Deleuze and other film philosophers, they all were came out of the Sartrean existentialist tradition. 
a post-war thing. And I, and I think that's been forgotten, um, that existentialism, in fact, is the core of a lot of what we do in film studies. Mm. At least that's my big right. claim. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm really excited to read it. It sounds really, really great. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You've got one book sold already. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully many and more. So, I'll yeah. borrow his one. <laughs> I'm great. Um, great. Well, David, thank you so much for yes, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, it was a really, yeah, really great to unpack the movie with you. Um, and hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. If there are some concepts or ideas that we um, mentioned there that you feel could do with a bit more unpacking, you can of course suggest. Um, uh, you can suggest. Uh, run out of words you can also of course send us some suggestions for our future footnote episodes you can do that at our gmail account fan and in research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research at gmail.com um and chris and i or someone else will break down the concept in 10 minutes not do it justice but ha- perhaps give you a flavor of what it means um you can use that handle as well that's fan and in research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research um to find us on social media and uh, you can talk to us there you can also check out the website, fancy-animation.org. Look at the archive of podcasts and blogs there. All at once. <laughs> All, at, All once. at once. Indeed. Yeah. We must return uh, to, to, to the murky world of here and now. Um, thank you to BAFS, British Association of Film, Television and Screen Studies uh, Conference, and to the University of Lincoln for hosting us for this episode. Um, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.